This is Fred Rachani. In this interview, we chat with Greg McGivory, legendary documentary filmmaker, IMAX pioneer, and the man behind the incredible Five Summer Stories documentary celebrating its 50th anniversary. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. We just checked out highlights of the trailer, the 50th anniversary of the legendary documentary, Five Summer Stories. I feel like this was like kind of like an ode to the, the culture of, of surfing and, and the 70s at the time. A really cool trip down memory lane, a really cool history lesson for myself as somebody who wasn't born in the 70s. <laughs> How surreal is it 50 years later to not only see this film still fondly remembered, but getting re-released widely? It's wild for me. Um, you know, the 50 years went by very quickly, but uh, back in 1972, um, it was an interesting time. The The world was changing and not only was surfing changing, but the world on shore was changing. Um, if you remember, um, and I know you're too young to remember, the uh, the first Earth Day occurred right there in the early 70s. And it's kind of amazing. I, I read this the other day. 10% of the United States population attended one of those Earth Day events way back. And I mean, that's huge. That's, you know, 25 million people going to an Earth Day event in their community. The, the concern for the environment was just beginning. The word ecology was just kind of used and tossed around. And, and when we made this film, we tried to reflect that and the values that would impact surfers, for example, you know, keeping the water fresh and clean and and, you know, away from things that could cause you harm, like like diseases. Um, and and the, 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 the bills that were passed by Congress in the early 70s and were signed by Nixon because he was afraid of surfers and hippies. Um, those bills, about 28 bills, including the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, the establishment of the EPA, the Environmental protection agency all those things are still kind of the cornerstones of uh you know the, the the search for a cleaner environment for everyone in america whether it be the skies the air that we breathe the mountains the freshness of the snow that comes off those mountains um the streams the lakes wherever you want to swim the water offshore um they're all cleaner now because of those acts. Is it, it's always an interesting time. If you go back that 50 years and then surfing, of course, was undergoing a, a renaissance. Shorter boards, surf leashes were just invented. Um, there, there are very few, if, if any, surf leashes in the film, but now they're commonplace. Every surfer has a surf leash and, uh, and that changed surfing altogether. And so the, the fragmentation of surfing at that time, the com over-commercialization of surfing at that time, surfers not being treated fairly at that time, and the closing off of beaches to surfers pre uh, the Surfrider Foundation and pre the California Coastal Commission, um, these were big issues. And so we touched on all of those in Five Summer Stories. You most certainly did. And it's kind of crazy that these days, of course, working with the Surfrider Foundation and Quicksilver. And I'm sure 
just being in the game for so long, like seeing how how the the surfing industry, the whole genre, ha, ha, has changed for you. What's kind of been the most surprising for you? Is it the financial figures? Is it the <laughs> level of stars that, they, that these people have now with the power of social media? What, what what's something that really kind of jumps out at you as somebody who's always followed this? Well, I you know I love it that surfers are finally making a good living from surfing. Um, they deserve it. They work. They, they've all worked hard to get where they are, even though. You know, surfing is the most fun thing you'll ever do in your life. Um, and so if you're making money from it, you're absolutely killing it on both sides. But um, it, it's not not unlike any other sport. Once um, you can turn that hobby, that love that you have into something that can actually be a career for you, that is magic. That is all of a sudden become someone different. I have to work, you know, at a at a at a at a store somewhere and and spend all your daytime, you know, doing something that you don't want to do necessarily. You can be out training yourself to look better uh, at the contests and look better for all your sponsors. And so it's a it's a wonderful thing. I love the fact. And now they're in the Olympics. You know, the the Olympics last uh, a couple of years ago in Japan. Um, you know, had the first. Uh, surfing events ever. And that's been a fight that we've all been supporting over the last 20 years. And finally, it got, you know, because Japan has a lot of surfers um, and a long coastline and some really good surfing spots. Um, they they let in uh, the surfing events. And I think they'll continue on. Now, you're no stranger to film. Of course, you have a legendary career spanning you know, over 60 years. You've done a little bit of everything. Of course, you're best known for your documentaries. And, and you're somebody I feel like that's kind of looked at, I don't know, as a, as a visionary or somebody that was a very forward thinking and you, you kind of paid attention to the technology. You were kind of one of the people at the forefront of IMAX technology. And not only that, but if you watch five summer stories, you could see kind of like the slow motion, the montage style, which I think has aged you know, extremely well you know, over, the, over the last 50 years and everything. When, when you were working with that IMAX technology and the slow motion and all, and all those kind of film effects, did you know you were doing something that was kind of pushing the envelope or was this at the time something you thought, hey, this looks kind of cool for my film? <laughs> no, 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 we knew. But, you know, that was part of the joy of, of working with Jim Freeman is we both were technically adept and interested in all kinds of new ways to get camera angles and shots. You know, I would build waterproof housings for cameras and I'd buy, buy different, different kinds of cameras and try them out in the water and trying to get underwater shots and, and coming up and revealing the surfer, all kinds of inventive things that hadn't been seen before. And Jim was really great because he kind of pioneered the use of helicopters in photography. And, and that was one of the, the coolest things. Um, and so when, we decided with five summer stories to try something new with super high speed, slow motion, real slow motion, 10 times slower than normal speed. So you could see the water crystals just float through the air as they come off the top of a wave. Um, this is something that no one had ever seen before. And of course, nowadays you can see it in any TV commercial, but you know, a GoPro could actually deliver you a similar image, a little teeny camera that big. But this was something that was new. We had to go out and buy these two very expensive cameras and train ourselves how to use them. And then 
go out and spend months shooting with them because it takes a lot of time to get the right camera angle and and to get those images. And so I look at I look at the film today and I go, oh, they're still those images are still beyond compare. You know, no one has ever done those kinds of things quite as well as Jim Freeman and Bud Brown and I did them way back then, partly because we spent so much time. We spent two and a half years making that film. And so we poured our hearts and soul and we knew it was going to be our final surfing film. We were moving to Hollywood productions. In fact, the reason it's five summer stories and so it it's five little bits is so we can work on the story, one story, and then go to Hollywood and make some films and then come back and work on another story back and forth. And that worked out great for the film and it worked out great for our careers. And uh, it, it, it allowed us to do these new things with cameras. And so now, you know, fast forward, um, four years, we were premiering our first IMAX film called To Fly, and it, it still plays at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. And then subsequent to that, you know, I specialized in uh, IMAX filmmaking and, and trying to create new styles of documentary storytelling through IMAX, through this powerful medium gigantic screens, ultimate clarity of image, great sound, you know, six channel and now 12 channel stereo sound and trying to basically deliver to the audience something that they could not get anywhere else. And that's been my career. I love technically achieving new things, showing the audience new things in a new way and telling a story in a unique fashion. So that's my that's my life. It's pretty simple. So, so is your career kind of like riding the waves, you know, go, going with the flow, like hey, rather than being kind of apprehensive to the new technology, you know, embracing it and seeing how you can push the envelope further? No, no. You know, I I always wanted to try and take risks. I always loved, you know, those two cameras that we bought to do five summer stories. That was a huge expense. Those were like ten thousand dollars. Um. That was a lot. That was like a hundred thousand today. That was a lot of money to us. And but we decided, okay, in order to push this envelope further, let's take this risk. Um, and it was a risky thing, you know, basically changing my career mode from Hollywood to IMAX um, in 1980 when I decided, okay, let's let's see if we can make this IMAX medium work. Um, at that time. The theaters were growing in number, but still there were only about 20 or less theaters. And, and other visionary methods of film like Cinerama had tried the same thing and failed. Uh, in fact, Cinerama got to be about 25 theaters total. And then they went out of business and everyone was worried that IMAX was gonna follow suit, do the same thing. And I had confidence. I, I would look at the faces of people as they exited IMAX theaters, like at the American Museum of Natural History in New York or at the Sony complex later on when it was built or Liberty Science Center near you. Um, when they come out of the theater and you say, how'd you like it? They just go, oh my gosh, it took me away. 
took me to someplace I'll never visit. And that's something that you know they'll love forever and they'll come back and want to experience that same kind of a, same kind of thing, maybe in a different place, different storytelling uh, again. And so you can tell from the audience whether you've got a hit or a miss. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's only enhanced the experience for people in theaters. We talked off the air about Liberty Science Center, which is near me, all the different you know, museums in New York and, and across the country. It just serves as a great history lesson and, and a unique experience and everything. And it's kind of cool that now we see a, a different form of IMAX now spilling into you know regular theaters nationwide. So yeah, you were certainly ahead of the curve there. And you mentioned that in 1980, your, your career was kind of at a crossroads and you figured, okay, I think we want to kind of go all in with this, with this IMAX thing and working with museums and everything. Around that time, there was a little <laughs> film called The Shining by Stanley Kubrick, legendary film. And what a lot of people may not know about your decorated career is that you actually worked on that film behind the scenes. So can you talk a little bit about that unique experience and why you decided even after that working with Stanley Kubrick to further go into IMAX as opposed to staying in Hollywood? It was, I tell you, it was a hard decision, but working with Kubrick was a dream come true. He, he's always been my favorite director. Uh, and he was Jim Freeman's as well. And, and Jim had died two years before I got that opportunity to work with, with, with Stanley. And uh, he died in a, uh, Jim died in a helicopter crash. And we were uh, working on a TV commercial for Kodak. Um, and so, but he would have, Jim would have loved working with Kubrick. And, but for me, when, when Kubrick called and said, my assistant director has told me all about you and I need you to work with me on the shining. And of course I dropped the phone and um, I said, wow, yes, I want to um, tell me what I can do. And so he explained what he wanted me to do, which is shoot all of the American scenery shots and, and doubled shots. So we didn't have Jack Nicholson in the car that we were filming, but we had a double. Sometimes it was my wife. Sometimes it was my uh, Jeff Blythe's wife, and and the, or sometimes other people. But the the deal was, we had the VW that matched exactly the VW that they had in London. They were shooting everything in London, and, and that shoot took thirteen months. And so I would shoot things in in America, and then go over there and show them to to the whole crew including jack and and shelly and, and the, whole, the whole you know john alcott the cinematographer and all these people became friends of mine because i was kind of like a breath of fresh air they were locked on the sound stage you know at l street studios in london six days a week he takes you know tons of shots you know like 30 takes, 40 takes, 50 takes to a single scene just to get it perfect. And he finds different things as he's delivering it and different ways to light it. And, and so the shots are different from one another. Anyway, what, what was cool for me is I learned how to make movies better. And I learned from him how to use your budget better and how to make it, how to stretch your budget in a way that that uh, no one else in Hollywood was doing. Um, in fact, he was probably the most efficient director and producer in the history of Hollywood. He took, with The Shining, about $14 million 
and made it look like the budget was 30 million. And it was astounding, you know, the kinds of things that he did. But he'd make deals with people. He, he, he said to Jack, you know, hey, you know, I'm not going to pay you a lot per day, but I'm going to hire you for a lot of days. And Jack said, great, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, as long as I get one day off a week. <laughs> anyway, it was a, it was a joy to, to learn from Kubrick. And probably one of my regrets is, is, as you pointed out correctly, you know, I did make the decision to then, you know, double down on the IMAX industry and try to uh, improve the documentary filmmaking in IMAX over the next decades. Um, but Kubrick then called me for his next film, Full Metal Jacket. He said, Greg, I need you. I need you. Please work with me on this film. And and I, I said, I've got to get back to you because I've got 100 things going on right now. And, and there are IMAX films. And I'm trying to make this, this system work and trying to improve the cameras and, and get new new things done and, and, and you know, show the audience how cool this is these images can be on this gigantic screen. And he, he goes, but you know, this film is going to be great. It's anti-war film and you're anti-war and all this. And so, but I said, you know, eventually I just, I had to say, I just can't fit it in. And, and he didn't really know at that time when we, when we taught exactly what he wanted me to do, you know, it was sort of vague, you know, shoot me images that look like South Vietnam, but the uh, um, it was it was an interesting thing, and I I very much regret not doing that because working with him taught me probably more than you can get out of film school in three years, and so it it was it was a sensational experience for a young filmmaker. Definitely, and I'm sure a lot of people can learn from this interview because <laughs> so much experience, so much great work put out there over time. For any aspiring filmmakers, maybe some filmmakers in the game right now. What's the best piece of advice that you give them for success? Well, it's all about story. Every film has to have a solid story. And those stories almost always have to involve the human condition and, and humans that you fall in love with and care for. And so what you should do if you're studying to be a filmmaker is learn English literature, learn <laughs> You know, learn art and English literature, because that's really what filmmaking is. It's that marriage of those two mediums that that um, are both deep and bold and wonderful and and filled with nuance. Um, and you can find new ways to do everything, which is the fun thing of filmmaking, is trying to find a new way to tell a story with new visuals, with new sound, with new music. Um, but to do it in an inventive and creative way that really brings across the humanity and the soul of it. The, the, the key is storytelling. And um, now there, that, that's not to say that there aren't wonderful visual treatises like Koyana Scotsi, for example, that we worked on with Godfrey Reggio and, and Ron Fricke. Um, those are wonderful to watch. But they're 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 deep, but you create that own deepness for yourself. Storytelling, narrative storytelling, um, is is really the name of what movies are. 
And if you've got a great story, it'll become a success. Um, you could almost goop off <laughs> to, if you have a great story and, and you'll be successful. Um, though if you do a really good job and you'll work your butt off, then the story's going to be even better. It's like Kubrick, his idea, and, and I had the same idea, is that you control everything that you possibly can control. And because you can't control everything as you're making a movie, um, you try to control everything you can control. So the sets, the camera movement, the acting, the, but you can't control the way the audience, what the audience is bringing to them, to the theater. And so sometimes you have a lucky experience and the audience is just ready for that kind of a film. Um, the Shining, for example, became Kubrick's most successful film. And it just was at the right time in his career. He, he, he'd already done um, you know, things like Barry Lyndon, which weren't very successful, cost a lot of money, gorgeous movie but it just didn't have enough of a compelling story. I mean, I adore the film, but it just um, didn't do well with the public. Um, so he needed something he felt that was going to get him back into the public's eye and, and uh, Clockwork Orange and um, The Shining really did that in a ma massive way. And, uh, and The Shining, you know, it was not only Stephen King's, what, third best-selling book um, out of how many books has he written? A million and a half, something like that. He's the most <laughs> voracious writer there is, there is in the history of mankind and one of the best. But, you know, you end up with Kubrick and you go, okay, I, I learned something from every film that he made. And every film was different from the previous. He never repeated himself one bit. So I, I learned a tremendous number of things from from working with him, but that's the answer to the question. Storytelling is the key to filmmaking. Learn storytelling through learning literature. Absolutely fantastic <laughs> insight. I, I greatly appreciate that. And why should people watch Five Summer Stories? I think it'll just take them back and they'll reflect on the past 50 years of culture and society, uh, America, and you know the value of surfing to the relationship that we have, we, we must understand between nature and man. Surfers are connected, you know, in a solid way with, with nature through the ocean. You, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in nature. You depend on it. You depend on those waves coming. Um, and so that respect that surfers have for, for nature is it's really intense. It's it's uh, kind of the same respect maybe that a mountain climber has for the mountain that he climbs. And the the, the deal is, I think you'll you'll find, like I said, with the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, the past fifty years have been good things for America's waters. With groups like Surfrider, but also groups like Oceana which I, I support um, heavily, um, you end up seeing that we can make a difference with the health of the planet. And we possibly can make enough changes to our activities to make 
the oceans and the air and, and the land healthy once again um, and, and a good place for humans to live. The 50th anniversary. Actually, bonus question. From what I understand as well, later this year, you actually have a memoir, right? A visual memoir? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all my friends, because I've done all these films, I think 60 or 70 films. And so they they forced me into writing a book of all the strange adventures. And so I wrote a book, dictated it as I was walking the beach over a year's time and edited it over a two-year period. And uh, it's got great visuals, great great photographs, and uh, it's called 500 Summer Stories. Um, and I'm not really sure if there are really 500 stories in it, but the, certainly there are some really good and funny ones, including, you know, wonderful story like I was telling about Kubrick and, and, and making the film Everest and making the film The Living Sea and, and To the Limit and other films that have become sort of classics of the IMAX industry. Well, we really do appreciate your time, sir. Before we let you go, where can fans find you online and where can we find you next? At MacFree Films. It's MacGillivray Freeman Films is the name of the company. But MacFreeFilms.com. And, or you can go to FiveSummerStories.com. You know, we, we also have a foundation called, it's my hat, One World, One Ocean Foundation. So it's all about ocean conservation. Um, but also, you know, I hope people support the Surfrider Foundation, uh, Quicksilver Company, and and you know the the World Wildlife Fund and and Oceana. Um, these are wonderful groups that are making a big difference in our in our planet.